everyone, and welcome to the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. My name is Rodney Benner, and my co-host Scott Bauman is here with me. And today we're talking about non-operative treatment of knee osteoarthritis, specifically about outcomes of a couple of studies that we've worked on to look at uh, where these patients go after they've come into our office. You've heard a little bit about that in the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we had Elena Gillenwater, one of our physical therapists, talking about what the physical therapy program is like, how we treat these patients from the time they come into the door uh, through the uh, through the early rehabilitation process and even eventually progressing on to a home program or, or on to surgery. And last week, we had our clinic's namesake, Dr. Don Shelbourne, in for the podcast to discuss how the uh, the evolution of how the non-operative treatment program came out of ACL reconstructions and uh, our long-term data with that and what we the, the lessons we were able to learn about the development of osteoarthritis in the knee and uh, treatment plans associated with it. So, Scott, um, we're going to start talking today about the, our outcomes, uh, outcomes research, which you've been heavily involved in as well. Yeah, so we've had a, a long-standing OA research study going on where we enroll patients at the initial visit they have with the docs. So patient comes in, gets x-rays, diagnosed with some type of severity of OA, whether it be mild, moderate, or severe, and then we enroll them into the study that day. And then generally, as you, if you listen to Elena's episode, you know that we'd like to get patients started right away with, with rehab, and uh, we start collecting data at that time point. And and as Elena had put, we really focus on extension range of motion first, progress to flexion range of motion, all while keeping swelling to a minimum and then working on strength. So we really try to focus in that order. And a lot of our data really uh, coincides with that. And, and what we do, we collect the extension range of motion data first. And then again, with the strength test, we collect isokinetic quadriceps strength test on the Cybex test, as well as single leg press testing on the uh, or, or single leg press strength on the leg press test for an isometric measure. Uh, and then for subjective outcomes, we collect the Ku score and we uh, try to analyze all five subscales with the pain, symptoms, ADL, sport, and quality of life. And Scott, what kind of progression are we looking for from this patient group? What kind of our, what, what, are, what were our goals when we started looking at uh, how this group progressed? Well, the very first goal, we want to try to get symmetric range of motion. And if a patient comes in with a unilateral problem, we always try to match the opposite side. So if a patient is two degrees hyperextension on the, the asymptomatic side and five degrees short of zero on the symptomatic side, we want to strive to get that knee extension symmetric at two degrees of hyperextension equal to the opposite side first. That's goal number one. Goal number two is try to get symmetric flexion. So if somebody comes in with 135 degrees of flexion, uh, on the contralateral side and 115 or whatever on the symptomatic side, we strive to make that be symmetric uh, to the opposite side. And then once it is, then we move on to strengthening. And with strength goals, we're hitting symmetry as well. So uh, I think that's something as uh, as listeners have listened to this series, they've really known that we really strive for symmetry. And we've found that when patients are symmetric from an objective standpoint, typically that leads to subjective improvement. And when we're talking about symmetry with strength, we're really striving to be within 10% of the other side, whether it be the isometric leg press test or the isokinetic quadriceps strength test. And in addition to that, we're looking at some functional parameters with the Ku score, trying to figure out what these patients are able to do and what not, what they're not able to do from the time they come in the door, and then to follow that over time to see if their function improves. Uh, talk a little bit about the uh, functional scores that we utilize as well. 
Well, the functional score, the main one we use is the Coos score, and that that tracks pain, symptoms, ADL, sport, and quality of life. And we really look at those five together as an aggregate score, of course, but we really try to tease that out because, like you said, we're really looking for function. And in this population, like with with total knees, sometimes things like the sport necessarily isn't as important, but what people are really focused on are pain and quality of life. And those are some main attributes of of the test that patients really look for to get that symptom relief to the point where they can progress on with their normal activities. And then, of course, despite the fact that a lot of these patients have severe arthritis, uh, we're trying to keep these people out of the operating room. That's another important parameter that we that we tracked as well. How often do these people end up in surgery uh, and how often can they maintain not not just make goals, but how can they stretch these goals that they make early on out to a year and beyond? Can they avoid surgery, uh, which is an important thing that uh, I think draws some people to our clinic because they show up thinking, you know what, I want to get better, but I've been told all I can do is either put up with it or have surgery, and I just want some sort of, sort of another option. So that allows us to make some a little bit of an give people a little bit of an idea of what their chances are of avoiding surgery. In addition to that, we want to look at that time course as well um, and talk a little bit about what we've learned from looking at the time course of range of motion and uh, coup score improvement. So like I said earlier, we, we we get the patients at enrollment and we start them on some range of motion exercises. And from a time standpoint, we looked at our data and we did a project on this and we looked at the retrospective data for the OA patients and found that most of the gain is within the first four to six weeks. And that's really for flexion and extension. Now we do focus on extension first and we uh, see, we graph this out. And if you look on our Instagram page for today's episode, you will notice the graph that we we're gonna put out there shows a pretty striking increase in extension for that first four to six weeks. And then from that four to six week time point through a year, it basically stabilizes and patients are able to gain about four or five degrees of extension in the first four to six weeks. And that stays at about that range for the, for the next 11 months. And for flexion, the same patients typically increase about 10 to 15 degrees of flexion in that first four to six weeks, and then levels off for the next 11 months throughout the first year of treatment. And interestingly enough, when we look at the coup scores on that same study that we did, the trend in the graph line really looks the same in that most of the improvements in Coup score over the first year happen in the first month. So for example, patients come in and they they score roughly 50 points on the Coup score in the pain subscale. And in the first month, they shoot all the way up to 70. And then at the end of treatment at one year, they're still at about a 70. So again, you make most of your gains, whether it be extension, flexion, or functional scores in the coos in the first four to six weeks and that stabilizes throughout a year now clinically that allows us to tell the patient that we can try this non-operative treatment approach for the first four to six weeks after enrollment or after their first diagnosis of oa is made and then once they hit that four to six week point they really just look internally and, and ask themselves are they at a point where they can live their life and get their activities to the point where they want from a pain and function standpoint or if that's something that they want to look more towards surgery yeah, for me as a clinician, that's some of the most important information that I've learned from this study is that 
is is that progression that the, when the, from the time the patients come in, how long does it take them to get better? People often come in thinking that certain, honestly, they come in thinking physical therapy is going to be a waste of time. You don't understand how bad my knee is. I don't think this is going to work for me. I was told, you know, by multiple doctors that all I needed to do was just wait till my knee was really bad and then have surgery. And that's where I am. So a lot of patients, once we start talking about physical therapy, is we can see them kind of coming around to maybe I should should give this more thought. Then they want to know, well, how long are we going to do this? I don't want to be doing this for months and months and then up and end up in the same place that I am right now, still having a surgery. And it's what we've learned that's been one of the most important lessons from this data is to tell people, give me a good four to six weeks. Do what your therapist tells you to do, both in the office at your at your visits and at home on a regular basis. Really commit to it for a month month to six weeks. And if you come back and tell your therapist a month to six weeks later, I've been doing everything you've told me to do. I've done the stretches. I've been, I've done the strengthening. I'm trying my best to get this better. And I'm just not making progress. Then I think this data has taught us that that's long enough. If they were going to make an improvement, they would have. We've also separated this out between the patients who end up progressing onto surgery and the ones who did not. And that time period really shows its way out. And on the, the people who avoid surgery, they make a big jump in their range of motion in their coos in the first month to six weeks. And the people who end up with surgery don't make any improvement really at all. Now, some of those people will get a little bit better from a range of motion perspective, but if they don't clinically improve, they don't get better pain relief, they don't get better function out of it, then they do end up progressing to, to, um, to on to surgery. So that's something that this data has clinically been very useful for me, at least, and for our therapy therapy staff as we move as we uh, move these patients forward is to have an idea of, of what that time course is going to look like. Scott, give us a little more specific numbers, a little more in the way of specific numbers from this data on what these patients look like when they come in from the very beginning. What's their range of motion like? What's their knee function like uh, when they first hit the door? Well, to sum that up, they come in and they're stiff and painful. When the patients first come in, on average, the patient's asymptomatic side is going to be 20131. So a knee that's functioning pretty well. Their symptomatic side comes in at 05117. So they're lacking five degrees short of zero. So essentially they're seven degrees off compared to the asymptomatic side. And from a flexion standpoint, they're about 15 degrees off compared to the asymptomatic side. And after one month of treatment, like we talked about, most of the gain is within that four to six week. On the symptomatic side, they get to 01125. So they make about four degrees gain in extension and roughly 10 degrees in flexion. Now with the CUSCORS scores we, we mentioned earlier, everybody comes in regardless of their severity of arthritis, whether it be mild, moderate, or severe, everybody comes in with 50. And that's something that I've found pretty fascinating, that patients don't really know what the severity of their x-rays show, they just know that they're painful. Whether they're mild, moderate, or severe, everybody comes in and pretty much on average is gonna be 50 points on the CUSCORS. score. And then regardless of the severity of OA, most people do improve in that four to six week time point, and they go from a score of 50 to roughly 70 in that first month. It's important to note the distribution of mild, moderate, severe patients in this cohort. So this specific cohort was over 200 patients, and the, the majority of patients had severe OA. So 41% had severe OA, 39% had moderate, and 20% had mild. So that shows that regardless of the severity, Patients are able to show a gain in range of motion and essentially function through the CUSCORE. score. 
Yeah, that was something that I think was really amazing to me also when we looked at the mild, moderate, and severe patients. The patients who had more mild degrees of arthritis scored about 50 out of 100 at the beginning. The people who had moderate degrees of arthritis scored about 50 out of 100. And the patients who had severe arthritis scored about 50 out of 100, which, of course, begs the question then, well, why are they all coming in at about the same level of dysfunction and uh, when when they have markedly different X-ray changes, and of course, the, the the we would argue then that that's related to their function, that they come in with a specific level of dysfunction, not re- kind of regardless of what their X-ray changes look like. And, um, you know, I think that puts it, th- those numbers put things into important context uh, of what we can expect for these patients. Um, they, they make about a 10 to 15 degree improvement in range of motion, which is not a small amount. I think if you ask most surgeons, would you like your patients to have 10 to 15 degrees improvement in range of motion um, before you think about a surgery. I think I I don't know why anyone would say no to that. Um, And when it comes to the CU scores, minimum clinically important difference on those subscales and the total score is about eight points. And if we look at our graph um, from from these patients in the first month, the improvement on each subscale is about 15 to 20 points. So definitely hits that threshold of the minimum clinical important difference. So knowing this is an OA rehab study and we went over the distribution of patients with varying severities of osteoarthritis, not all patients are going to continue non-operative treatment forever. So can you talk a little bit about the percentage of patients that go on to surgery from this OA rehab study? Yeah, that's really where where I think this shines a lot uh, is that I think a lot of people view the physical therapy process as something that uh, is just going to delay the inevitable, that if I'm going to end up having surgery anyway, then what's the use of doing all this beforehand? One, we do believe there's an improvement that to be made from a function standpoint before a surgery if you do have it. But of course, we are also trying to avoid surgery. And in this cohort of patients, we were able to avoid surgery about 75 to 80 percent of the time, which is a significant number of joint replacements that patients are able to avoid. Obviously, it's a significant disruption in people's lives to have surgery. It's time off of work. It's time off of work for their caregivers. Um, and and it's a it's a significant amount of pain and dysfunction and rehabilitation that comes along with it. So if we can get these people better, improve their function, make their knees manageable without surgery, of course that's a that's a great thing. We also know in orthopedics, almost every meeting I go to, there's discussion about just the onslaught of joint replacements that are going to need to be done in the next couple of decades as baby boomers continue to age and our population continues to live longer, uh, talking about increases of uh, several times over on the amount of joint replacements that need to be done in the future. And what are we going to do about this? Do we have enough surgeons to be able to do this? Do we have the capacity and bandwidth to be able to handle the uh, large numbers of joint replacements that are coming towards us? So if we can take about 70 or 80% of those patients and say, you know what, maybe you don't need surgery after all. That would be a significant savings to the, to the, uh, in healthcare expenditures to the entire healthcare system in the United States, uh, which is, which is a huge thing that I think uh, lots of people are trying to get on top of. For us, we think a big way to do that would be improvements in physical therapy and non-surgical treatment and EOA to try to avoid surgery altogether. So I think that's great. Knowing that about 70 to 80 percent of patients are able to avoid surgery is a pretty striking number, and I think something that's going to be a positive going forward. And with that number, knowing that it's 70 to 80 percent avoid surgery, we did want to get a little more granular with this, and we wanted to see what compartments or what severity of arthritis patients had that maybe led to a total knee 
at a higher incidence compared to other compartments or other severities. So we designed a study, and this was actually presented as a poster at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in Las Vegas, as well as the combined sections meeting for the APTA this year. It was titled Rates of Total Knee Arthroplasty Based on the Location and Severity of Knee Osteoarthritis. It was authored by myself, Rachel Slavin, a physical therapist at our office, Dr. Benner, and, and as well as Dr. Shelbourne. Now, what we did was we took these uh, patients in our OA rehab study, and it totaled 337 patients, and we grouped them into nine different groups, and it was mild, moderate, severe for either the medial, lateral, or patellofemoral compartment. And what we did was we looked at the incidence rates of total knees uh, within the nine groups and then statistically compared them to see if there was a difference in that incidence rate of going on to have a knee replacement. So, Dr. Benner, you being a part of this study, can you go through what the results showed for this? Yeah, we thought when we started this study that there wasn't going to be much of a difference based on where the where the arthritis was located. And what we found was the exact opposite, that which compartment was the most involved did dictate a lot where whether or not the knee was able to progress non-surgically. So we took these patients, reviewed their radiographs, and we classified into the, them into mild, moderate, or severe, medial, lateral, or patellofemoral based on where their arthritis was the worst. And it, as you can imagine, in the mild group for the patellofemorals and the lateral sides, nobody progressed all the way to surgery. In the medial group, uh, about 9% did go on to have surgery even when they started with mild arthritis. Now, people may be wondering if you had mild arthritis, why, are, why is anybody progressing to surgery, especially on the medial side? A lot of these patients are people who had avascular necrosis, stress fractures, or stress injuries um, that uh, had more of a rapidly progressive course. So they started with mild arthritis, but they didn't stay as mild arthritis. They progressed to severe uh, before they had surgery. But even when we went to the, to the most uh, uh, important of these groups, the severe group in the medial, lateral, and patellofemoral compartments, we found quite a bit of difference. So among the patients who had severe medial compartment arthritis, 43% of them went on to have surgery. So we were much less successful in, in in avoiding surgery in people who had severe medial compartment arthritis, but 57% still were able to avoid surgery. In the lateral compartment, it was we did much better at avoiding surgery. Among the lateral compartment group, only 17% of patients went on to have surgery. 83% were able to avoid surgery. And on the patellofemoral group, only 9% of patients with severe patellofemoral arthritis went on to have total knee replacement whereas 91% were able to avoid it. So to recap those numbers, the severe medial group went to surgery 43% of the time, severe lateral was 17% of the time, severe patellofemoral was 9% of the time. So we've now been able to look at this, uh, as you said, in a little more of a granular fashion that when people come into the office and say, well, what are the chances that this actually works, Dr. Benner? I, I, I originally would just say we're able to avoid surgery about 70, 75% of the time. Now we can break it down even further to say, you know what, that because your arthritis is mostly on the inside part of your knee, we've got about a 50% chance of having surgery, about a 50% chance of not having surgery. Or to those patients who have severe lateral compartment arthritis, we that uh, they have an 80 plus percent chance of avoiding surgery. Uh, and for the patellofemoral group, say this is a much more likely to not need surgery and be able to be managed in a non-surgical manager because the primary area of the arthritis is in the patellofemoral joint. So, Dr. Benner, any reasons as to why the medial compartment has a 43 percent? total knee rate compared to the lateral compartment only having 17 and why the media would be so much higher than the lateral side? 
I guess I kind of expected that the patellofemoral group would have lower rates of arthritis. I didn't expect it to be quite that striking, where less than 10% of them are going on to surgery. But I didn't expect there to be much of a difference between the medial and lateral compartment severe groups. Um, but uh, but it was a lot different. It was almost three times as many patients went to surgery if it was a, a medial compartment arthritis versus lateral. A couple reasons for this that, that that I think are possibilities, although I don't know this for sure. This is more of an opinion. Uh, the as everyone probably knows, the alignment of the knee does put the weight-bearing line just slightly into the medial compartment uh, normally. So once you start to, which is of course why people are more likely to get arthritis in the medial compartment to begin with. And when it starts to happen there, that weight-bearing line moves further and further into the medial side of the knee as the joint space narrows. As the knee gets more into varus, that weight-bearing line shifts further and further and further into the medial compartment. And because of that, I think it's a little more likely to progress and continue to get worse versus on the lateral side that weight-bearing line starts more towards the medial side or in the middle. So even after you get some lateral wear, it isn't really tipping quite as much into the lateral side. Uh, the second one's just an observation. It's not really a mechanical thing that for whatever reason, we don't see patients getting as stiff when they have lateral compartment arthritis. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. A guess that I have is when we see wear patterns on the medial side, it's usually anterior medial. And because of that, the tibial side especially is more loaded in full extension. So I think that anterior medial arthritis may have a little more loading of that arthritic area in extension and subsequently then be more likely to lose extension. And that loss of extension we know can continue to increase arthritis over time versus on the lateral side, the wear pattern is more likely to be posterior lateral and more on the femoral side. So when you go with the knee all the way into extension, you may not be loading that area quite as much. You may be able to maintain your range of motion a little bit better. So those are, the, you know, some of that's conjecture, some of that's, you know, biomechanical in nature. Um, but, uh, but I think those are a couple of reasons why we may see such a, such disparate outcomes and progressions to surgery uh, based on the location of arthritis. So with this study, besides looking at the incidence rates of total knees based on OA location and severity, we also had patients take a Coup score, and we had them take it at enrollment one month, three months, six months, and 12 months after enrollment. Can you talk a little bit about the progression of the Coup score over those time points for those that went on to have a knee replacement versus those that did not? Yeah, some of that data we talked about earlier about where patients start and how quickly and how much they progress really came from this study as well. So if we look at the initial time point, the patients that avoided surgery had a pre-treatment initial Coup score of 50. The patients who ended up having a total knee had a pre-treatment initial Coup score of about 48. So really at the same level of symptoms. And But both of them got better in the first month. The, the improvement was a little bit better in the group that avoided surgery. Uh, uh, in that the TKA no group, the, the group that avoided surgery, went from a pre-treatment level of 50 uh, up to 65, a 15-point improvement in that first month versus the patients who went on to have surgery went from about 48 to 58 or 59, so only made about a 10-point improvement. The big difference was when we went from one month to three months, the patients that avoided surgery went from 65 
continued up to 70 and then stayed at that 70 range all the way out to a year. For the patients that ended up having surgery, they initially went from 48 to just below 60, but then at the three-month mark, they're down to 55 and, and continued to kind of decline after that one to three months. So uh, we're able to tell those patients, if you make an improvement in the first four to six weeks, that'd be great and we can have an idea whether or not it's possible to avoid surgery. However, if, you, if from one month to three months, you get worse and things turn in the opposite direction, maybe it's more likely we're headed towards an operation. Excellent. I thought this poster and this project showed some really good information in terms of what patients go to knee replacements and, and what patients don't. So that about wraps up our episode here today with looking at the outcomes of the non-operative treatment approach for knee OA. And this completes our three-part series on non-operative treatment for OA with Elena starting and kicking it off with the rehab and then Dr. Shelbourne coming in to discuss the development and the evolution of the program. And then today we obviously wrapped up with the outcomes. So knowing the uh, the three-part series is coming to a close, Dr. Better, can you give some closing thoughts in terms of non-operative treatment for knee OA? Well, the first is the interdisciplinary approach involving our physical therapists with our clinicians and providers, in addition to coupling that with following things from a research perspective has been a real win for us in this particular space, uh, especially as much as or maybe even even more than than other parts of our research department that we work on. So that's one, having having a close relationship with your physical therapist, following your data and uh, incorporating that into your clinical practice is a huge is a huge deal. Secondly, perhaps most importantly, do not tell these people that they can't get better without surgery. In our opinion, that is just flat wrong and it's not going to and it's not going to go that way. And as a surgeon, don't let yourself fall into the trap where you think because patients have stiffness and they have severe degrees of arthritis that they can't get better without surgery. Our, our, our data has shown that uh, for the last several years in our office that patients can and do make improvements in range of motion. It does lead to clinical benefits and it can often avoid surgery regardless of what their, uh, regardless of what their x-rays look like. And another big important part of that is that the clinician that sends somebody to a non-surgical treatment plan really has to have conviction and belief in the system. And if you don't, it's probably not going to work. I find that these patients come in often ready to have surgery, ready to sign up, and but sometimes almost reluctantly. Sometimes I think these people have been told you can't really get better without surgery, so you just put up with it and live with it or you move on. And uh, once they're presented with uh, a different potential treatment plan or some other options, they're actually really relieved that they have some other options to have. However, I think if the surgeon goes in and says, well, we could do some therapy, I guess, if you want. Uh, I don't know if it's going to help you because you're pretty arthritic, but I guess we can try it. I think the patient hears that as this isn't going to work, so why should I even try? And even if you make them go ahead and do that. If you don't approach it with belief and conviction, then I don't think it's uh, it's just not going to give the same kind of buy-in from the patient that you, that you have uh, otherwise. I think uh, those recommendations that we give and how clearly we either believe or don't believe in what we're talking about with our patients directly relates to how compliant they are with the subsequent treatment. So I think it's important for, for in our office, at least myself, Dr. Shelbourne, all our physical therapists, our PA, everybody that interacts 
interacts with our patients all believes in this and tells them this can work. We've seen lots of patients like you who've had severe arthritis, who've had stiffness, who've been told that they didn't have any other choice but surgery, who have subsequently done better. Even if you end up going to surgery, you'll do it with a better knee, uh, functionally speaking, but it is possible to avoid surgery altogether. So uh, th- those are those are some things that I really take away from this, and I would encourage anyone who uh, who wants to learn more about this uh, to, to contact us, and we'd be happy to share this information and this treatment plan with you. But when you approach your patients, just make sure you get in front of them and say, I believe this can help you. We have a plan for you, because that's what the patients want more than anything. They want to get better, whether it's surgery or not, and they want a physician, a PA, a therapist, everybody in the office to have a plan uh, that really gets them headed in the right direction and can make them confident. Excellent. Well, thanks for that information, and uh, I appreciate you going over all that, and I think that's really beneficial for really all clinicians, but especially the orthopedic surgeons and the physical therapists that are treating these patients. Like you said, if if anybody has any questions or comments, uh, you know, if they practice in a very similar fashion that what we've talked about or, or vastly different, let us know. You can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. You can visit us on our SKC Facebook page or email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Mm-hmm.